Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight and we come ready to receive. Your message is so much more important than the messenger. And so tonight, even though we come with weaknesses, Father, we know that your message is so strong and we are going to learn so much. So, Father, I just pray for every one of us who've come through the doors tonight because every one of us has something. We all have a weakness. We all are battling that we want you to be able to fix. Father, that's just life. And so tonight, you are going to be speaking so loudly to us. You're going to teach us how important it is to just trust and obey to allow you to open our eyes and our ears, to be able to hear everything that you've got for us. Father, you want us to humbly come before you and say, Lord, I need you every hour, every minute, every second. Can't do it without you. Father, you want us to know that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. And Father, you absolutely want us to know that because of your grace, we were once lost, but now we're found. And we definitely were blind to see ourselves. But now, because of Jesus, because of the Holy Spirit, we do see clearly. So Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, do your work in us tonight, and we will give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. Okay, this is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true, and it's all that I need. Good. Luke chapter 4. Where did we leave Jesus last week? We left him on the mountaintop. He had just been baptized. He just experienced the dove in bodily form landing on him, which was the Holy Spirit. He heard his father's voice saying, this is my son. I love him. And I am well pleased with the mission that he is going to be going on. You talk about a mountaintop experience. Now, it is no coincidence that Luke takes us from the mountaintop experience to the desert to be tempted. And tonight, I just want to do, I don't like to talk about the devil. I don't like to give him any, any encouragement by, by reinforcing who he is and what he does. But we do have to be reminded and made aware of again of why he does what he does. You know that he was booted out of heaven because he tried, he tried to play God. He tried to think that he could have exactly what God had. And God does not share his glory. He is a jealous God. We worship him and him alone and Satan was booted out. 
Well, from that day on, Satan was on a mission. And he was going to pay, he was going to pay God back. So what are Satan's objectives? What is he trying to do? We're going to see tonight, he did everything he could to keep Jesus from going to the cross. He tried everything to make sure that that event never happened because he knew what that would mean. That that would mean that he lost. And then, what does he do with us? What does he do with us? He does the same thing. He does his best to try to keep you and I from going to that cross of Calvary. He he doesn't want us to see ourselves the way we truly are. He doesn't want us to humble ourselves and craft the gospel and know that it is our salvation. Because he too knows what that will do for us. But tonight I hope and pray that that you are so convinced that he already knows that that he's lost you. But does that mean that then he stops? Look at with Jesus. He never stopped. He nipped at Jesus' heels all the way to the end. And he does that with us, even though he knows that he's lost us. He still wants to do something else, and that is keep you and I ineffective. He doesn't want us to be shining the light of Jesus out. He doesn't want us to live out the fruit of God's Holy Spirit. He doesn't want us to show people that there is a new life and a whole different way to live. He doesn't want them to know that there is a worth and a purpose for getting up in the morning. He would rather have us be defeated and and discouraged and down. He wants to see our countenance with that hopeless look. Because then people will look at us and say, you know, I think I'll pass. If that's what it is. If that's what it looks like. If that's, if it, it doesn't give you anything but, but hopelessness, then, then I'm going to pass. Then there's real, really no need for me humbling myself. Because I really don't think I want to look like that or act like that or be like that. Now, I try to always have a visual. Maybe this will help if I say this to you. If if Satan can keep you and I away from the cross, and he can keep us thinking that we're self-sufficient, Or if he knows that, okay, all right, Jesus has got him. He paid the price for him. They know that. However, they're certainly not looking like it. And they're not being effective for one other person. I kind of picture Satan going like this with a smirk on his face. It's like, I and I, I'll tell you, that makes me sick to my stomach when I think 
has got a smirk on his face and he is applauding because he feels he's won. So it's just kind of something I think we've got to keep going over. It's something that we've got to be made aware of that if we, and only if we resist the devil, and how do you resist the devil? Well, Jesus is going to show us. And then he will flee from us. Now, he won't flee forever but he will flee for a time. And then when, when will he come and attack again? When will he come again? Well, sometimes it's after you've been on a mountaintop. And we get a little spiritual cocky. We get a little spiritually cocky because we think, well, I've just had that experience with the Lord. I am so tight with him now. I, I got it. I, I'm, I'm in the clear now. I think I've got my life with him the way I want. See, a mountaintop experience, as much as we love it, it is a dangerous place because we think then that we're okay. We don't, we don't get that longing with, Lord, I need you. Oh, every hour I need you. If there's a crack in your full armor of God, that crack is when self thinks, you can do it. Self thinks that it can, it can do it. So when, when you're on a mountaintop experience with the Lord, I know it, it is a precious and a blessed place to be, but I'm just saying be cautious because it can be dangerous because that's when we get a little self-sufficient and that's when Satan will attack again. I just think we need to be aware of his tactics. I always say, if, if we could just see him coming, if we just could, from afar off, see that pitchfork, or we could see those horns, or we could see the red of his clothing. But that's just comic books. And the way Satan deals with us is he prowls. He prowls around to see who he can devour. Do you want to get satisfaction to someone like that? So again, it's just a, something that we need to be aware of. So my first question was, why do we need the Holy Spirit? Why do we need the Holy Spirit to face temptation? Because the first line of the text tonight is Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led into the desert by the Spirit. Someone asked me this week, how come Jesus was led by the Spirit, but then also had to be full of the Spirit? And I said, because that's the way he operates. The Holy Spirit is there for us to follow. He's there to show us the way. He is our counselor. He is our, he is our comforter. So many names Jesus calls the Holy Spirit. He is our guide. 
and he will lead us to the right place. Now you think, well, I don't think that that was such a wise move, leading Jesus into the desert. But you know, as much as we don't like those desert times, as much as we do not like those valleys, oh, we'd much rather stand them on. But I'm sure you've heard this. Grass doesn't grow on the top of a mountain. Grass grows green and lush in the valley. We do our best growth in the valley. And so Jesus is out to experience everything so that he can identify with us in every way. So it was time for the Holy Spirit to lead Jesus into the desert. But Jesus, why was he full of the Holy Spirit? Because that is the only way we can face our enemy. We can only face the devil with the power of God's spirit. Because if you think that's, that, you're, that you're stronger than Satan, you are going down every time. Satan is stronger than you. And the quicker you learn that, the better. And I don't think that there's any clear picture than how the world can grab us with some kind of addiction or some kind of hold on us, a strong hold. I mean, I've seen it over and over where people who are just trapped in some kind of addiction. And I, I worked with a couple of them personally, and this one lady especially. I met with her for two years. Every week on Wednesday afternoon, we went into God's Word, and she was doing magnificently because the power source that was within her. Because when she went to Calvary, Paul says, you are then given a gift. And that is the promised Holy Spirit. So that when you turn away from the cross and you go back into your living, you have got a power source that is greater than any other power. When I was with her and she was so strong in the Lord and she activated the Holy Spirit in her life, she was fine. And all of a sudden, she started, because she was kind of a strong, strong gal. She was always, she always had a strong will. She had great human abilities and gifts. And all of a sudden, she said, you know what, I'm doing fine. And I cautioned her. I said, no, every hour, every second, we need him. And she just got to the point, of, I mean, one week she called, nope, I'm not coming. Okay. Two weeks, nope, not coming. Three weeks, her husband called, and she is a mess. It's just the way it works. My brother's a recovering alcoholic, but he always says to me, I love it when you call me that. But he says, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And he said, but the only reason that I have made it 30 years since my last drink is because every morning I lift up my eyes to the hills. And where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord.
You see, that is your power source. And if you ever get into that, that lie of the enemy to think that you've got this, you are going down because you are not stronger than the enemy of your soul. But when you do have, when you are full of the Spirit, just like Jesus, he needed to be full of the Spirit so he was able to now face what he was going to face. And it said very clearly, I mean, he, he it says that he went into the desert under the guidance of the Holy Spirit he was there for 40 days. What does the enemy know about you? He knows where you're weak. He majors in that. He knows. Look, look with Jesus. I bet the first day wasn't so hard. Second day, third day. By the time you, he's not eating at all. So his body is growing weaker and weaker. Satan is saying, I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him. He's getting weaker and weaker. So my, my next question, what does, Satan, what does Satan know? How does he know to attack you? He knows where you're weak. He knows where you're vulnerable. And I guarantee you, He's a master at that. And that's why you need help so much. Okay, so he ate nothing during those days, and at the end, he was hungry. He was. He was, because Luke has done such a great job of making sure we know that Jesus is 100% man. So when we read he was hungry after 40 days, he was hungry. Now, Satan, because he knows weaknesses, these three particular temptations, they're just exactly like what we face day to day. Every day we face temptation. And the quicker you memorize Paul's verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the quicker you are going to know that you have the ability and the power to be able to face that temptation and to beat it. Not in your own strength. Paul says, there's not one temptation that is too strong for you. But then he goes on to say, if you go to the Lord for your way of escape. So Paul made it very clear. I think he's talking from experience. He's talking, I learned this. I found out that I, I face temptation every day, and the only way I can be victorious over it is by knowing that I have to go to the Lord for my way of escape from this. So the devil said, if you are the Son of God, some version says, since you are, it doesn't matter. He was playing with him. If you are the Son of God, since you are the Son of God, take that stone and turn it to luscious, warm, with butter.
water. I'm sure he just put it out there. When you're that hungry after 40 days, that was a major temptation. But look how Jesus answers. And did you notice with all three of those temptations, he's got like a two-line answer. He doesn't go into 14 paragraphs of explanation. You know what he does? He goes right smack to God's word. But I want to take you to where that verse originated. If you want to, go back to Deuteronomy Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Fifth book of Moses. Chapter 8. I want you to hear God say to Moses, Be careful. Be careful to follow every command that I am giving you today. So the warning... Be careful. Don't ever get slipshot. Don't ever think that you can handle it. Be careful. So that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised an oath to your forefathers. Second verse, second word. Remember. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. God said to Moses, you may test me, I may test you. And the reason why I test you is because I'm a good teacher. And I want to make sure, because it's so easy to hear my students say, oh yeah, got it. Yep, no. No problem. A good teacher isn't going to take your words alone. Here comes the test. Let's see what you know. And the same thing that God does to us. I'm going to test you because you're so good at saying, oh, no problem. I know this. Been through Luke quite a few times. This story is so familiar. I could say it in my sleep. And God says, you know what? I think I might test you on that. Because I want to make sure that if there's something in your heart that maybe you haven't even seen yourself. I'm going to test you because I think the quicker it's exposed and you start to realize that maybe your heart's not quite as good as you thought it was, that you don't know quite as much as you thought you did, you better be thankful that I test you. God says to Moses, I'm going to test you because I want to humble you. I want to make sure that you do know and it is in your heart and you are living this. He said, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna 
which neither you nor your fathers had known. He fed them with manna. They never heard of such a thing before. And he did that to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He basically said to Moses, Oh, I know food is important. I know you need it to survive physically. But sometimes food can be such a temptation. Sometimes in other countries where they don't have any food, they, they long for a crust of bread. They do anything for a crust of bread. They live, they eat so that they can live. And then you live in a country like we do, where food is such a priority when we're not even hungry. And we live to eat. And that too can throw you. Because did you notice this? I went back to Genesis and I, I looked and I thought, goodness sakes, Satan tempted Eve with food. And Satan tempted Jesus first with food. So it must be a problem. And God made sure Moses knew that as important as food is, it doesn't hold a candle to God's word. Just make sure you remember that, God is saying. So back to Luke chapter 4. So Jesus answered with those very words. It is written, man does not live on bread alone. Verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give all, I will give to you all their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to you anyone I want to. Did this trouble you at all? When Satan said he, he brought Jesus to that high place and, and had him look at all the kingdoms of the world and said to him, I will give that all to you. I will put you in, in authority over the whole thing. Because I can give it to anybody I want. Now I know he's a master liar. And that was my first thought. But then, like I said, when I went back to Genesis, God gave Adam full authority, full dominion over the world, the earth, to name all the animals. So Adam had full authority. Well, in Genesis 3, when, when they failed, they forfeited. And so this was the truth. And Jesus says in John 12 and in John 14 that the devil is the prince of this world. Of this world. Paul, in Ephesians 2, verse 2, calls Satan the ruler of the air. 
And when Jesus answered, because when Satan said, so if you just worship me, it will all be yours. You know, he was right. He has handed authority to different leaders through the years. Now it makes sense. When you, when you hear about a man like Adolf Hitler or Saddam Hussein or Putin and you think, how in the world can evil be so prominent? Then I read that and I think, yep, if he's given it over, if he's given the authority, no wonder we're seeing the shape the world is in. But he says, worship me, and I will see to it that all of this is yours. And you know, Jesus didn't come back with, hey, buster, this is just temporary. He didn't say that. Even though, I got to say, I quick went to Revelation 20 because I needed to remember. I love that verse in Revelation 20 where it says, and Satan was thrown into the lake of sulfur with the beast and with the false prophet and with all the demons where they will suffer torment forever and ever. Whew, good. This is temporary. But Jesus addressed this one line. And I'll tell you, he went back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 where he confidently said, and the word said, worship the Lord, your God, and serve him only. That's all Jesus cared about. He knows that this world as we know it is going to be gone someday. And he knows that his children will be a part of a new earth. Because the old order of things has passed away. But this whole thing about worship, worship the Lord your God and Him only. That's how he answered that. Cut and dried. Then the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If or since you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down. Just throw yourself down. And this was such a low blow. This was such a low blow that Satan used. He used our wonderful Psalm 91. We love Psalm 91. I go to Psalm 91 so many times. And that lousy devil, he took Psalm 21 and he was dripping with sarcasm. And he twisted it. And I couldn't help to think Revelation 22, last book of the Bible, last chapter of the Bible, last few verses of the Bible. You better know that when Jesus said, John, write this down, 
This is the most important thing that they need to know until they're with me. Tell them, don't mess with my word. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. And right in the middle of adding or take away, it's don't twist it to meet and fit what you want it to do. Don't mess with my word. And that's exactly what he did. He said to Jesus, cast yourself down, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Can't you just hear him? Hey, just jump off. 10,000 angels are just going to come and scoop you up. And you're not going to have a bruise on you. I want to see that. You've got all that at your disposal. And Jesus answered him. It says, and again, what's it says? God's word says. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. I repeat, he can test us, but that's for our good. And James says, don't ever say that God would tempt you because he would never cause you and I to sin. God would never tempt you. That's solely enemy territory. God would never tempt you. But don't say that God won't test you because he will. But know that it is for your good. But he says, don't you dare test him. And you think, well, what does that mean? How do I test him? How do we test him? Why is it such a strong command? Don't you put God to the test. It's because, unfortunately, we do it way too much. And maybe I can put it this way. It's when we start, when we start manipulating him, we start kind of saying, let's trade off. How about if you answer the way I want, and then I'll do this. And I know we don't think we do that, but we do. And what we're doing is we're manipulating him. We're trying to tell ourselves, that's perfectly fine. It's just a simple trade-off. I know I used to do it. But I, I just have to tell you something that happened to me Sunday night. Sunday night, before I went to sleep, because I knew that my voice really went weak. And I know it's not easy to listen to, except I'm getting to believe so much that if you are willing to hear the message. But still, in my ugly human nature, I said, I said to the Lord, I said, 
I know by morning, I know by morning you could make my voice crystal clear. So before I, I start doing this lesson Monday morning to the first class, my voice will be crystal clear. And I also know that you could just absolutely take the whole disorder away. So I never have to battle this again. But then I remembered, it's just like when the spirit is working and, you're, and you really have a desire to want to do it the right way, the Holy Spirit will help you recall what you've learned. And I heard it, I knew it, it was the truth. It was James saying, never, never ask anything. Never request anything without saying, not my will, but yours be done. Oh, you might not like it. You might not understand it. It certainly probably isn't your choice. But you know him so well. And you've learned that his will is good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. Are you going to trust him with it? And so, I take it. Not my will, but yours be done. And I fell asleep, slept all night, woke up the next morning. Here we go. I tried it out. Nope, still there. But I'm telling you, when you, when you know that God answers your request, it just so happened that his answer was no. But when you believe that his will is pleasing and perfect and it's good and he's always up to something and he's got a reason for every answer to our requests, it puts such, it's, it puts such uh, confidence to a no answer. My old self would have just been, well, thanks a lot. I mean, yeah, I, I could have said so easily, how about this trade-off? You heal me, and I'll keep doing this till I die. Isn't that a good trade-off? But I knew, I knew, because the Holy Spirit didn't help me recall that. No, the Holy Spirit helped me recall truth. Always take, not my will. Yours is better than mine. It could be, it could be tonight. You're ready to throw in the towel. You're ready to man manipulate. You're ready to test God. You've had it with life. Maybe he said no, because I'm going to prove to you that you can be tempted, you can be tested, and you can make it through it victoriously. Because I got to tell you, even though the answer was no, I felt like a million bucks. And I couldn't believe that I felt that good. Because I don't like the word no. But I am starting to see that he does know K-N-O-W better than I do. And it is such a powerful way to handle his decisions. 
when the devil finished. All this tempting. He left him. But make no mistake. He left him until another opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. I hope you didn't miss that line. Now I know other gospels say and angels came and ministered to him. But I think it was more than physical with Jesus. He went back to Galilee and he was powered. He was empowered with the spirit because, you know, I think on such a greater scale than me, but I think he was saying, I did it. I proved you can beat temptation. When you're full of the spirit, you can do it. And I proved it and now I can pro prove it by putting it in Luke chapter 4. And people can learn that it is not impossible to stand up to the tempter. He was powered by the Spirit. And news spread all through the countryside about him. And he taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Now, who did Jesus have the most trouble with? He had it with the religious leaders. And, but when he started his ministry, people weren't at all convinced who he was. And you're going to start seeing that because Jesus did what he did, they were amazed, not because of who he was. They didn't believe that. But they were amazed at how he spoke and how he did miracles. So he taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He then went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Now, where he had been brought up, that's for 30 years in that little town of Nazareth. He, he, he worked in that wood shop. I bet, I bet people were very impressed with his talents in that wood shop. They watched him and his siblings they, they watched him, them grow and be normal people, do menial tasks. You know, they, they were just everyday people. And on the Sabbath day, because see, that's another thing. They watched a good Jew went to Sabbath synagogue every week. And so they watched Mary and Joseph bring the tribe in. Now, I don't know if Jesus ever read before, but on this particular day, he stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. See, this is so timed 
perfectly. So Jesus takes the scroll and unrolling it, he found just the right place. So I can picture him taking the scroll, unrolling it, thinking, I got to get to Isaiah 61. He knew exactly where he was. He knew exactly what he was gonna, he was looking for. He knew the exact passage he wanted to read. And he knew that he was going to be reading it for the first time like it was never read before because hundreds of years ago, Isaiah wrote this. And those Jews in the synagogue that day probably were mouthing the words right with him. They knew it so well. But they were mouthing the words, believing that, yes, that's the promised Messiah we're talking about. The one that has been promised year after year after year, never, ever thinking. But Jesus knew, and he was going to say it in a way that they've never heard it, and they're going to be amazed by that. But again, but they don't know why. Listen to Jesus say these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. I mean, you think about it. Jesus knows this is exactly what's happening. He's just had that mountaintop experience. The Spirit came on him. The Spirit is in him. He's been anointed by the Father. He's been sent out to preach the good news, the gospel message, the news that salvation cannot happen in your life unless you believe who Jesus is and the cross is where you need to go. I think, he, I just wish I could earn him because... This had to sound so confident. All these years of promise. Preach good news to the poor. Who are the poor? Well, yeah, literal, literal poor, poor. But when Jesus is talking poor, he's talking anybody that will not believe that they need a Savior. Everybody who thinks that they're self-confident they got a handle on it. That's why Jesus says, oh, you think you're rich, but you're poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner. I'm telling you, what does sin do to you and I? It imprisons you. It puts us in such a stronghold. It puts us in such bondage. It puts you in the innermost prison, the worst. And Jesus says, I'm coming to free you. And recovery of sight for the blind. Why did we sing that tonight? Because only Jesus can truly open our eyes and open our ears to really be able to see him. 
and he knows it. And he's saying, yeah, I'm going to cause you to be able to see so much farther than with physical eyes. Your sight, your spiritual sight, is going to show you how to really live. To release the oppressed. He knows, Jesus knows, he's watched it, that life gets the best of people. And they go down. And they don't even have the gumption or the reason to get up. Oppressed is such a powerful but sad word. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to release the oppressed. I'm going to lift them out of that miry clay. That pit of despair. And then he says this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Like I said, I'm sure everyone in that synagogue that morning was just listening, but also mouthing the words because they knew him. And I'm sure when Jesus got to this verse, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, they automatically went to the Leviticus Mosaic Law that every 50 years was called the year of Jubilee and all land was returned to its rightful owner. All relationships were brought back together, broken relationships brought back together. Forgiveness was given and they could start all over every 50 years. That was in the, the Leviticus law the year of Jubilee. And I'm sure they were thinking, oh yeah, that's a, good, that's a good year. But when Jesus said to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he's saying, yeah, it does associate with the 50-year Jubilee, but I'm taking it far better than that. I'm going to forgive you past, present, and future. I'm going to start your life all over again. You are going to know life like you've never known it before. Because it's the year of the Lord's favor. I'm here. Then he rolled up the scroll. You know, you know what's so priceless about that? It's because if you go back to Isaiah 61, it's like Jesus knew exactly when to stop. Because the rest of that verse refers to the second coming. Well, he doesn't want to go there yet. This is enough to handle right now. And he stopped right there. And so he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down. And the eyes, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Because like I said, he spoke Isaiah 61 like they never heard it before. And they were amazed. He began by saying to them, he's, I think he didn't restand. I think he's saying this sitting down. He said, today, 
today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, we know, but that was a, that, we know what he meant. That was quite the statement. He was really confessing and telling them, hey, you just heard that. Well, today, this scripture is, not will be, is fulfilled to all of you who are here listening. That's what he said. And for, for a couple of seconds, I think that just kind of went right over their head. Because they were still sitting there so caught up with, wow, never heard it read like that before. Because it said, all spoke well of him and were amazed at his glorious words that came from his voice box, from his lips. And then I think something drastic happened between lips and isn't. I think all of a sudden what he just said there, today, this scripture is fulfilled to you who are hearing it. I think all of a sudden they thought, what did he just say? Who do you think he is? Who in the world does he think he is? He's just Joseph's kid. So how does he have the nerve? See, Jesus already knew that they changed their mind. And Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. I think what Jesus is saying here is, I'm going to quote it for you. I know you're thinking it. So I might as well quote it for you. Physician, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Okay, smarty pants. They're thinking, prove it. Let's see some tricks. Jesus said, I know what you're thinking. So I'm just going to tell you. And they probably were, they were probably startled thinking, whoa, that's exactly what I was thinking. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. Jesus understands. He knew that they had watched him do menial chores for 30 years sit with the Joseph clan in the temple in the synagogue, work in the carpenter shop. He has no right to be able to be this eloquent and to be able to, with such confidence, saying, today. Sometimes you can know someone too well that you miss their heart. I wish I could tell you how good I am in California. 
this, at least that's what they think. Because after all, I came from Michigan. That's a long way. It's, it's that psychological thing that you can't possibly, we just saw you admire. So what gives you the right? I'm going to tell you a, a, true, a true thing that just happened two weeks ago. I have two girlfriends that we have been friends since we were five. So that means 65 years we have been best friends. Now, you can imagine in 65 years that our lives went in different directions. But they always seemed to come back. And no matter, whenever we met, it was like taking off where we left off. Because we knew each other so well. Well, two weeks ago, because now that we're all here, we meet about once a month or every other month, and we just meet at Burger King in Hudsonville. And we just had the best time. But two weeks ago, I thought, okay, I'm going to have the nerve. And I looked at my two best friends, and I said to them, you know that I've got these Bible classes. And in my head, I know that they're not going to any other study because I've already checked on that. So I did say, and now that you're both retired, I said, I sure would love it if you'd come. I, we're doing the Gospel of Luke, and we're doing it line by line. I think you would just love it. I wish you could have heard the excuses. And I think it's kind of, I, I think I understood the way, the reason I understand this passage so well is because Jesus knew what they were really thinking. And I knew what they were really thinking. And they were really thinking, oh, hell, we just know you too much. I wish I had had the nerve to say, yeah, but you don't. You might superficially know me, but you don't know what God can do in a heart. I wanted them, I wanted to say so badly, just try it. I guarantee you won't even hear me. So Sunday, as the Lord would have it, see, I don't believe in coincidence for one second. Of course I'm hurt. Of course I'm hurt that they're not here. I even looked for them again this morning. But they weren't there. But Sunday, you know, both our boys are pastors. Now, Jason doesn't preach all the time. We listen to their sermons in the afternoon all the time. But Tom and I decided, let's, let's go here, Jason. We can sit back to our Sunday school class. After, the, after Jason preaches, we can sit back to our church for Sunday school. So we went to Calvary. We sat in the back. But we know. We knew right away he spotted. But I just got to tell you what happened. And I'm going to be very honest with you. 
they did all the singing and the preliminaries and all that. Great service. And then Jason walked up. And he, he had his worn Bible in his hand. And he walked up there. And for the first 10 seconds, I'm going to tell you the truth. I looked at him and thought, God, he's adorable. He looks so cute right now. He looks so good. His hair was just right. And, oh, so cute. And then I, my, I had one more thought of that. No one could love that boy more. Other than Jesus. No one could love that child more. And right after I thought that, he opened up his torn, worn Bible. And he opened up his mouth from Exodus, started telling this story of Moses. And I'm not, his, God is my witness, I'm standing here. Within 15 seconds from me walked up, and I was thinking all these mother things. I totally forgot it was my kid. And when it was done, I thought, that's exactly it. If you want to, no matter what the circumstances, if you, if you open up your Bible, and I thought, see, even, even with a bad voice, I can still stand up here with confidence because it isn't about me. And the Lord had me see in full bloom with Jason that after 10 seconds, I didn't even see him. But I heard him. I heard God through him. We totally underestimate what God, what God can do through us. Then, after he said that, a prophet is known in his hometown. Then he uses these two examples. Because he wanted them to take a look way back in Elijah and Elisha's day. You know, to tell you the truth, I didn't even know that this was going to happen. Remember when we were talking about John the Baptist and that, that he, was, he had the power of Elijah? And so I took you back to 1 Kings 17 and 18, and we kind of went over how close Elijah was to the Lord and what he was able to do. So way back then, God, God is using Elijah and Elisha. And so God is saying through Jesus here, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Seraphath in the region of Sidon. Remember what we said? Elijah was called into the desert after the Lord and him were ready when the, when, when the God said to Elijah, okay, it's time. Where did he call Elijah? First stop, to a widow in pagan country, Seraphath in Sidon. See, 
the Jews, they're, they're, they're just getting more and more appalled. See, they know First and Second Kings. They know all about Elijah. They, they just hate it that Jesus is bringing this up. So Jesus doesn't care. He just continues. And there were many lepers in Israel. And yet, at the time of Elisha, none of them were cleansed. But God sent Elisha to a man named Naaman in Syria. Again, couldn't be worse. Gentile. But yeah, why did God pick them? Because, you know, the Jews at that time, remember how we said, they thought if they were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm fine. He went to Sidon. He went to, to Syria. And he picked two Gentiles because he could see their heart. Because when Elijah said to the little widow lady, um, I need, I'm starving. I need some food. She says, well, you know, all I got left, it's drought. And all I got left is a little oil, a little flour. I'm going to make one more little piece of bread for my son and I. Then we're going to die. Elijah says, go make it and give it to me. Now, what do you think that widow was thinking? Whatever she was thinking, she obeyed. She trusted and she obeyed, especially when he said, oh, it's never going to run. You're going to watch that oil, that flower never run out. Now, come on. But she trusted and she obeyed. And then Naaman. Yeah, Elisha tells him, you got to go to that dirty, filthy Jordan River. And you got to go in there. Dump yourself in there. Get out. Go dump yourself in there again. Get out. Do that six, seven times. And what you think Nemo would say? I don't think so. That's creepy. But he did it. And both of those people would have missed the blessing if they let logic stand in the way, they would have missed the blessing. If both of them would have said, ah, don't think so, they would have missed the blessing. Well, look how one verse they were all amazed. And now look at verse 28. You talk about Fickle. If human nature, if human nature isn't fickle, I don't know what. Oh, it's so easy to say, oh God is so good. Oh yes. God is so good. I got everything I want. Oh, I love to praise the Lord. My life is just so smooth and easy. Oh, you can guarantee I'll even raise my hands. It's so easy to do that. When everything's going good. But just flip it. And see if all of a sudden you don't think he is so good. And all of a sudden you are starting to say, Who do you think you are? You can't even listen. You can't even answer. And you think of what we might do 
to the Lord when we don't always get, I think I can understand. I wish I could say it never happened to me. But when I didn't get my way until I've really learned this, oh, I got mad at him a few times. I, I got furious. I even remember sitting up in bed one night after Chad went into the Marines. That first night after we dropped him off, I couldn't sleep. And I sat right up in bed, and I shook my fist at the Lord, and I said, oh, boy, you promised us peace. Well, let me tell you, I have no peace. You are not good on your word. I laid back down, and it's just like I could hear the Lord say, are you quite through? Did you have your little tantrum? Because when I was willing, I heard him say, you have no peace because you have not surrendered him to me. Peace comes when you surrender to my will. We had a stupid grandfather clock that dung every 15 minutes. And after I surrendered, my boy, I never heard that dong again. Peace comes when you surrender. And that's in any instance. But look, the people are furious. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. I learned something this week about that. When, when, they, when they were going to stone somebody, this is the first step they would do. They would take the person to an edge of a cliff and then push them off so that then they would probably be half dead already. And then they would start hurling the stones. So they are so furious that they're, they're going to stone them. They're going to kill them. But God's timing is perfect. And he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. It wasn't time. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach the people. And they were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. I'm so glad Luke put it that way. Because it just, it just perfectly shows they were amazed at his teaching because he spoke with such authority. They weren't listening to the words. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? If you come to destroy us, I know who you are the Holy One of God. Here's this demon, such irony. The demon knows exactly who Jesus is, knows that there's going to be an end to him. He, he knows that he, as a demon, there's going to be an end to him. And yet, the people who have known the promise for hundreds of years that should have been ready, that should have been looking, that should not have been a surprise, 
that the, when Jesus stood up and quoted Isaiah 61, they should have seen it. Because their spiritual eyes allowed them to see Jesus for who they were. But no. So Jesus said to the demon, even though he was telling the truth, be quiet. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. Oh, all the people were amazed. And they said to each other, what is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Oh, of course it did. Jesus was making everything better. He left the synagogue, went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from high fever. And they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over, rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. She didn't even need a day to recover, to gain her strength. Let this be a simple lesson. When God heals, and what is our what is our greatest disease that we need to be healed from? See, Jesus is not that impressed or that concerned about physical. I know that sounds horrible, but he is so concerned about the eternal, not the temporary. He's more concerned about our heart condition. So what is our greatest heart disease? And that is our sin. And what's so beautiful about it is all we need to do is take that walk to the cross and we can be sure that he will heal completely. We don't ever have to think that Jesus might say, well, I'll forget part of it. He heals past, present, and future. He paid it all. When you walk away from the cross, you can sing blessed assurance every morning from now on. There's now one second you have to doubt. Because he is yours. And you are his. And the Holy Spirit now is alive in you. Now it's up to you if you want to activate him or not. So just know that Jesus heals completely. The sin that is the most important to him. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the synagogue. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Jesus will never allow Satan or his helpers or anybody fake proclaim his name. He will take care of it. And there's so many ways he takes care of it. But it's the truth. He will not let fake or demon or Satan proclaim Jesus' name. He will shut him up. 
At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. Now, at first you read that, don't you? And you think, well, that's friendly. They just want Jesus to stay. They love him so much. Don't kid yourself. They're so selfish. They want him to stay for one reason and one reason alone. Boy, is he ever doing some great things here. I mean, so-and-so was blind. Now they see, you know, he couldn't walk a step since his birth. Now look at him. Or look at this mentally handicapped person. Look at Now he's clear-minded. Oh, let's keep him around a while. Look how Jesus answered. I must preach. Look at these words. I must preach. Whoever's telling Luke this, probably Mary, make sure that you quote Jesus. This is how he answered when they wanted and begged him to stay. I must preach the good news. I must preach the good news. I must preach the gospel of the kingdom. I must preach salvation. I gotta preach to people that think they're not lost, but they are. I gotta preach to them that the promise is fulfilled right in front of their eyes. That everything God promised and used the Old Testament to show them is here and fulfilled. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. And he kept on preaching in the synagogue of Judea. But did you notice he didn't make any reference to I must go to other towns and heal the sick and cast out the demons? He didn't say that. He said, I have to go to preach the good news of the kingdom. I wrote on my paper one last thing to close tonight. This is what I saw. Jesus' miracles and his healings and his, and you know this phrase, because so many tell me about it, and I love to hear it. Oh, do I have a God story for you. God was in this. This is what he did that no one else could do. I love to hear that. It was a God thing. God's miracles and God's things, oh, they, they truly are impressive. And they're true. And he's still in the miracle business. And you can still know that he is in situations. But I think what he wants us to know more than anything is that that was never his main emphasis. It was never his main in emphasis that we see all what he can do in miracles and make us comfortable and turn things out and do all those things. That wasn't his main emphasis. His main emphasis is that we hear him preach. 
than we hear him preach his word. Because it's the life-changing word that changes our hearts. It's quite a lesson. Heavenly Father, again, you took a message that's so powerful, a very familiar story. But when we, when we plunk ourselves right in there and we dare say to you, what do you want me to see? We don't have to say that twice to you because you will show us. And even though it might be convicting and challenging, and sometimes it's right in the face. Father, I think what you want us to see is that you're there. And even when temptation is right in our face, there is no temptation too great. When we allow you, who never leaves us or forsakes us, the power source that lays within us, ready to be activated. And then when we do it your way, such a wonderful, satisfying, contented feeling to know that we did it your way. And we're not paying the consequences by doing it ours. Father, thank you for the power of your word, for your spirit. Now may we take these words, may we put them, may we allow the spirit to put them in the depths of our heart and soul so that at just at the opportune time, we can hear your voice and we can feel your power and we can live like you always intended for us to live. And we pray this all in our Savior's name.